Somewhere along my journey as a permaculture designer, I made an important discovery. Living systems are not assemblages of elements. Any design sketches are at best servants of the way things are unfolding on the ground, rather than upfront masters, as in master plans, where fabricated guesses are imposed. The capacity to enhance life in assembling is almost non-existent, in partitioning is average, and in transforming is off the charts! Welcome on back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and this is episode 31. The date is March 1st, 2020, and it is high time to get this show back on the road. That's right, it's been pretty quiet on the blog and podcast front for the last several months. What with uh, my family and I spending a good couple of months over in New Zealand, largely off-grid and offline. And then uh, arriving back in Australia to discover um, a bunch of the design-related projects I'm involved with. We're well and truly ready for a good dose of attention. So I spent the last several weeks focused mostly on those and now bringing my attention back to, among other things, the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast project. And my intention is for the next episode to catch you up. A lot of stuff has been happening behind the scenes, under the radar, in the background including our six-weekly Making Permaculture Stronger Online community of designers gathering. And that's really gathering momentum and kind of it's it's revealing it what it wants to be to us. And that's, that's really exciting. And I want to tell you more about that and some of the um, things we're discovering and exploring together. And there's been a lot of, I've still been doing a lot of uh, thinking, reflecting. I'm learning a lot from Carol Sanford every week. Uh, all of which has interesting implications where this project's going to go. Anyway, that's all coming up. I'll give you a proper breakdown and um, heads up on on where things have what, what's been happening and where they're heading soon. This episode, what I wanted to do was share an article that I wrote that was informed by a bunch of previous posts on making permaculture stronger that came out in the February edition of the Permaculture Design Magazine. And there's a few reasons I want to do this. One is that it's about generative transformation, and that was an important outcome of phase one of making permaculture stronger. And I realized that for those of you out there that I get the impression there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast without necessarily reading the blogs, which I can totally understand, and um, it will give you access to that idea, which to me is a, it's a stepping stone that will, will um, inform future steps. Um, also, I'm quite keen, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on the, the intention of making permaculture stronger and where I want to be focusing uh, my energies within the project in the coming year. And, and one of those points is reaching out and connecting and partnering with um, complementary uh, enterprises, projects, organizations, that kind of thing. And Permaculture Design Magazine is, is a really a naturally good fit. Obviously, given that making permaculture stronger is largely about permaculture design process. And so I really wanted to um, let you know about this latest edition and about the magazine. Um, encourage you to go and check out the, the rest of it. I'll, I'll share the article I wrote, both by reading it out and you can also download it in the PDF format it, it appeared in the magazine as. And, well, that's probably enough of an intro. I guess I'm, I'm going to launch into it. We'll see how we go. It does refer to tables and the chart, a chart itself and um, various images, diagrams and stuff. So I'll do what I can to describe those verbally. Um, but know that if you need to, you can go and check out the show notes um, and 
load up the PDF and see all the stuff that might make things clearer than they um, are purely by listening, but we'll see how we go. Okay, well, let's launch right on into it. All right, so the magazine is Permaculture Design, uh, subtitled Regenerating Life Together. The theme of this edition, February 2020 edition, is Emergent Design, and the cover of the magazine is adorned with a photo of a uh, monarch butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. And I'm going to read out the editor's introduction. The editor is Rhonda Baird, let's say, Rhonda Baird. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce your surname, Rhonda. Um, big thanks to Rhonda, by the way, for inviting a contribution from myself and presumably many of the others who contributed. Uh, and just for the fantastic work you're doing putting together this, this great resource for the permaculture community. Anyway, Rhonda's introduction is titled The Edge is Where the Action Is. And she starts by saying these wonderful words. Emergent design was one of the leading takeaways for me from our issue exploring design process. That was issue uh, 108. Most teachers, according to my understanding, approach the design process as a static, linear one, which requires the designer to see and know all things from original principles, implementing them with flawless perfection. The resulting imprint of our imagination onto reality might, might make Plato proud, but it probably doesn't happen very often in reality. Recognising and valuing the fluid, responsive and messy reality of design and implementation is crucially important. Perhaps it is so important because it requires us to be humble and question our assumptions. But recognising this messy reality also helps students and clients proceed by accepting there will be valuable moments for feedback and by making adjustments along the way. Adaptability and imaginative response are wonderful foundations for survival and sustainability. More to the point, emergent design allows us to find the growing edge of complex systems and respond appropriately. We talk about the concept of the edge is where the action is. Permaculturists know the capacity to identify and engage that edge in our rapidly changing world is essential to our success in pushing systems in a positive, life-affirming direction. The more experience we have in design and implementation, the more intuitive our processes become so that design takes less time and realises more success. How can we work together to ensure that others recognise the value of this work? This issue of permaculture design tells the stories of teachers, designers, community organisers and other permaculturists who work tirelessly to realise a better world. One of a healing earth, connecting communities and empowered people. We are proud to share their often differing points of view. Luby McNamara, Luby McNamara, McNamara, Luby McNamara, McNamara, let's say, Luby McNamara starts us off with some thoughts on using the design web to guide our work. Rob Hopkins contribu contributes from his new book on the power of imagination to solve our problems, as well as an interview on the subject. Dan Palmer, a strong proponent of the power of emergent design and permaculture, that's very kind, Rhonda, sums up his thoughts from several years of consideration. Uh, Rhonda goes on to, to summarise several other contributions, and then she ends by saying, In this new decade, in this moment of this year, today, we are committing to a pivotal change. The world is on fire. Let's get to work. All right, and then on page 10. Uh, my article starts, 
and the title is One Lens on Emergent Design and Complex Adaptation, Generative Transformation. So from here on, these are words that I wrote. And it starts with a note. The content of this article is adapted from posts on Dan's blog, www.makingpermaculturestronger.net. The following chart, I write, presents nine possible spaces any design process can sit within or move between. In the top right corner, the chart suggests a name for a space that I believe is permaculture's rightful centre of gravity. I call this space generative transformation. As we'll see, generative transformation is a way of going about doing or creating anything, be it a garden, farm, organisation, livelihood or life. So you can check the chart out on the, on the show notes. Uh, presumably some of you will already be familiar with it. Uh, but to describe it um, to those who aren't, it's, it's, there's two axes and there's three spots on each axis. And I'm going to talk through one axis after the other. So you should be able to build up a picture of it as you go along. Next subheading is Assembling, Partitioning, Transforming. First, I'll clarify the two axes that give rise to the nine possible spaces. I'll start with the difference between what I'm calling assembling, partitioning, and transforming. I see these as three increasingly life-enhancing ways to think about whole-part relations as we design and create things. So to clarify, these are three different ways that we can think about the way that wholes and parts are related when we create stuff. Whether we think that's a good idea or not, we bring one or another understanding of how wholes and parts are related to everything we do. And so what I'm trying to do is pull them out into the open and tease apart different ways we can frame or conceptualize um, the stuff. So I'll go through A, B, and C. A is creating by assembling. From an assembling perspective, how you go about creating is easy. Choose some elements, then join them into a whole system. For example, you might get a wish list of desired elements such as ponds, chookhouse, windbreak, veggie patch, and then figure out how to best insert and connect them to create a whole permaculture garden. While it has its value, a risk comes with this approach. With its focus on inserting and arranging elements, it is all too easy to impose solutions. Let's put the swale here, and then the herb spiral can go over there, even if you don't realise that is what you are doing. When you create by assembling elements, the outcome is an assemblage of elements. B. Creating by partitioning. Somewhere along my journey as a permaculture designer, I made an important discovery. Living systems are not assemblages of elements. Indeed, this culturally widespread assembly approach flies in the face of how any living whole comes into being and then evolves. It was Christopher Alexander that woke me up to this fact. Here I quote Alexander in his 1979 book, The Timeless Way of Building. Christopher writes there, Design is often thought of as a process of synthesis, a process of putting together things, a process of combination. According to this view, a whole is created by putting together parts. The parts come first, and the form of the whole comes second. But it is impossible to form anything which has the character of nature by adding preformed parts. Alexander has shown that contrary to an assembling process, it is more accurate to say that a living whole's parts, or organs, unfold out of the growing whole, where the whole comes first and the parts come second. This is another quote from Alexander uh, in his late, much later 2002 book, The Nature of Order. 
it's probably volume two or four. Anyway, the complex, the, he says, the key to complex adaptation lies in the concept of differentiation. This is a process of dividing and differentiating a whole to get the parts, rather than adding parts together to get a whole. And now we go back to 1979, where he, where he um, fleshed this idea out a bit more, saying, this approach to design is a differentiating process. It views design as a sequence of acts of complexification. Structure is injected into the whole by operating on the whole and crinkling it. Not by adding little parts to one another. In the process of differentiation, the whole gives birth to its parts. The parts appear as folds in a cloth of three-dimensional space which is gradually crinkled. The form of the whole and the parts come into being simultaneously. I never stop loving this stuff. He he just I mean it took I think it was at least seven years or something he spent writing that book, but it was um, it's like poetry and philosophy and really practical design advice all, all rolled up into one. As an aside, the the noted spiritual leader Krishnamurti would have one of his aides read passages from the Timeless Wife building to him um, at the end of his life. Anyway, I go on to say that taking Alexander's words at face value, I conducted and documented several practical design examples, documented on my blog, where the whole design process was explicitly about moving from pattern toward detail and gradually partitioning the pre-existing whole landscape. Here, for instance, you might start with an entire backyard, partition it into orchard and veggie areas, then partition the veggie area into annuals and perennials and so on, right down to where the parsley goes. One advantage of this approach, alongside being more aligned with how the rest of life creates itself, is it requires you to pay more attention to the pre-existing whole you are working with. The risk of imposing preformed solutions is thus significantly reduced. Hence it being midway on the chart's y-axis continuum from less to more life-enhancing. I was just I just have the thought that for anyone out there who thinks when I say whole I mean a depression in the ground, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a W-H-O-L-E, not an H-O-L-E. Anyway, next session is C, so this is the, the third spot on the um, on the vertical axis, the y-axis. This is creating by transforming. Eventually, after many years designing by assembling and then by partitioning up the whole, then by reading more Alexander, the penny dropped for me. He was not talking about flipping from assembling, joining parts into holes, to partitioning, dividing holes into parts. This is a false dichotomy. Following in Alexander's footsteps, I now use the words transforming and transformation as a bigger and more inclusive process than merely assembling or partitioning. To transform is to make different, to differentiate. When we are transforming a whole in its parts, we are making it different, no matter whether we are integrating new parts, removing old parts, or changing existing parts around. These are all different ways of transforming the system, of differentiating the whole. Yep, it's hard to disagree, I know, and it seems blatantly obvious when I say it. But here's the thing. Even though we might intellectually grasp and agree with this stuff, the way we then behave as designers and creators very often disagrees with it. As much as we might like the sound of this, it is very hard not to fall back into the culturally dominant design by imposing and assembling rut when the rubber hits the road. 
So I use transformation to transcend and include the seemingly contradictory approaches of assembling and partitioning. To transform is to start, always, with a whole that already has parts. Every whole landscape already has parts. Every whole person already has parts. When we surf or dance or co-participate in the evolution of either, the whole and the parts are moving forward together, simultaneously. Next uh, subheading is permaculture is transformation. Permaculture is never about starting something brand new with a blank slate and dropping something entirely new into a space or place. It is always about stewarding the ongoing transformation of what is already there. In this sense, we are only ever retrofitting what we already have. For there is always, everywhere, already something going on. Which is to say there's already a whole which already has parts. Our job is to listen to the utterly unique narrative already unfolding inside any situation and then to harmonise with it and, where appropriate, perturb it in life-enhancing directions. On this note, I always appreciated this comment from Toby Hemingway, the late great Toby Hemingway, who left this comment on the Making Permaculture Stronger blog um, early on in 2016, where there Toby wrote, I think Alexander's concept is much closer to how permaculturists actually design, by starting with something that is already a whole and then differentiating and integrating additional factors into it. The issue is mostly that our language is not caught up to our practice. Thinking in terms of relationships and organic wholes rather than collections of parts is foreign to our culture and not easy for anyone from Western culture to do. Uh, I then say that the following table recaps the three-way distinction between assembling, partitioning, and transforming. I hope it helps and you're getting a feel for the distinction and, and if and how it might shed light on how you see and work with things. So I'm just going to talk you through the table. It has a few rows, which first one is what you start with, and it goes on to what do you do from that starting point, and then what's the primary operation, what do you end up with, is it primarily creative or conservative, what's the direction it goes in, regarding patterns and details and what's its capacity to enhance life so if we go we go back to the top what do you start with so in assembling you start with a background space or container that already contains some elements in partitioning you start with a continuous chunk of uniquely textured whole space when transforming you start with a continuous chunk of unique and evolving whole space revealing itself through its parts now what do you do from that starting point so the idea here is that the conceptual frame that you bring to what you're working with very strongly impacts and creates, in a sense, what, what it is that you see. So, you know, it's not just how you how you proceed, it's what you actually see your starting point as. Once you do start, what do you do? Well, in assembling, you introduce more elements to the container and then assemble them, assemble them to maximise functional interconnection. In partitioning, you slice or partition the space up into a pattern of sensible units based on its unique texture. In transforming, you iteratively transform the whole and its parts in desired life-enhancing directions. In terms of the primary operation, in assembling its addition, in partitioning its division, in transforming its integration, addition, division, subtraction, multiplication, modification, etc. in any combination that's appropriate with no upfront bias to one or another. What do you end up with? In assembling, you end up with a whole system of interconnected elements. In partitioning with a harmoniously partitioned whole, and transforming a more involved and, and harmoniously interconnected whole and its parts. Primarily creative or conservative while assembling, 
is primarily creative, partitioning, primarily conservative, transforming is equally both. The direction it goes in regarding patterns and details, well, assembling moves very clearly from details to patterns, as in elements to whole systems. Partitioning from patterns to details, as in whole system to parts. Transforming, again, equally both. The capacity to enhance life in assembling is almost non-existent, in partitioning is average, and in transforming is off the charts. Alrighty, so uh, I'll go back to the text where I say, I also hope it is clear why, why I believe transforming is more life-enhancing than merely assembling or partitioning. In transcending and including both assembling and partitioning, transforming is literally more holistic. It gives us more options to both see holes and to more fully develop their potential. Now we move to the x-axis. So we've just gone through three different ways of thinking about holes with a W and parts are related when we're designing and creating. Now we're going to think about three different ways. This is a different thing. Three different ways that designing or thinking can be related to implementing or doing. So here I say, uh, the names I'm going to use are fabricating, hybrid, generating. That's the subtitle. And I say, let's now focus on the x-axis of the chart. I'll explain what I mean by the progression from a fabricating through a hybrid to a fully generative approach to designing and implementing. I see these as three different ways designing or thinking and implementing or doing can be related whenever we do stuff or create stuff. We'll start with fabricating, then consider generating, then come back to the hybrid middle ground. Fabricating, which in brackets I, um, after that I say master planning. So the idea is fabricating and master planning are the same thing more or less. A fabricating approach comes, completes an upfront design or master plan and only then starts implementation. The plan for the Hayes home, and I show a early design, detailed design diagram I did for the Hayes' home. The plan for the Hayes home is an example of a fabricated master plan, fabricated assembly. Isn't it pretty? It also brings together hundreds of mistakes in the sense that many of these decisions would be, make, would be made much better in sequence and in context as the site was being developed, rather than being dreamed up and crammed into a plan up front. This is not to suggest that there's not a time and place for such plans. It is to say we get in trouble when we forget what they are. Diagrammatic guesses that can never, ever capture or respond to all the new details that only and inevitably emerge as soon as you start to intervene in any complex system or ecosystem. Ben Folk in 2013 has put this very nicely. I caught this snippet on an interview of Ben by Scott Mann on the Permaculture Podcast. Thanks for making that happen, Scott. It's easy to just take paper too seriously and have too many decisions based on what is or isn't on a piece of paper. It can be great to guide overall decisions and to know starting points and know general steps, but if it's not coupled with the active hands-on that constantly changes what's on that paper, a master plan or site design, it can be very misleading and very dangerous. Now I move on to introduce generating in contrast, stark contrast, to fabricating. I say a generating approach rigorously and repeatedly hones in on the, next, on the best next step then takes it. Here we generate a design layout or pattern in the very process of actively modifying whatever we are working with. Any design sketches are at best servants of the way things are unfolding on the ground, rather than upfront masters, as in master plans, where fabricated guesses are imposed. Though I first learned about generating from Christopher Alexander, 
I subsequently discovered that permaculture co-originator David Holmgren explored something similar for many decades. David contrasted master planning, what I'm calling fabricating, with strategic planning, which is very, very similar to what I'm calling generating. Uh, So quoting from David, and this is from his book Trees on the Treeless Plains, he says, Master planning, where detailed plans are implemented producing a fixed final state, which is a copy of what is on paper, has been discredited in the planning profession due to its failure to deal with complex evolving systems. In strategic planning, the emphasis is on processes of development, which are ongoing and respond to changing circumstances. It recognises that complex systems can never be completely described, predicted or controlled, but that forces can be identified and worked with to develop a more balanced and productive system. Most importantly, strategic planning can help pinpoint the initial step to get the desired processes moving without later having to undo what has already been done. In a master planning or fabricating approach, it is difficult to avoid making premature decisions and then imposing them on reality you thereby end up taking steps that are not the best suited to what is actually going on at that stage in the unfolding process. Sorry, that's me. So David stopped. I started with saying in a master planning or fabricating approach. Back to me. In a generating process, on the other hand, we move from imposing on reality to unfolding out of reality. Ooh, sounds a lot better, doesn't it? As a result, the decisions we make along the way are non-arbitrary. They are made at the right time in the presence of the right information, meaning we have at least a chance of getting them right. When by fabricating we make our decisions before we even start, it is as if we're turning on this massive tap of arbitrariness where the quality of the outcome rests on the nature of the guesses we made at the start. Furthermore, if we seek to align with the rest of nature, nature only generates. As a result, an authentic generating process is much better able to connect with and enhance life. It just makes sense. Here's a few images from the 10-acre Maybury Woodend Project in Victoria, Australia, where the residents and I have been experimenting with generating. In terms of our diagram, this was actually an example of generative transformation, which is the top right of the nine spaces that the, 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 the doors results in. This next diagram shows all we drew before we started to ground test and do. A diagram that includes only what we decided was the best next step, a new driveway. Not only are functionally and aesthetically harmonious layouts achievable without drawing up front plans, what emerges is, is in my experience, so much better. For the record, I'm not saying there is no place for drawing on pieces of paper or computer screens. Indeed, as I've shown above, part of the planning process for the driveway in this project was drawing possible driveway layouts on paper but the focus was honing in on and crash testing the next best step, not creating a plan to impose. Now we come back to the middle option that's between fabricating and generating, which I call hybrid or concept planning. The hybrid approach is now easy to introduce. It mixes together equal parts fabricating and generating. In particular, it involves completing a high-level, broad-strokes concept plan ahead of starting to implement. Then lets all the details fall out of the creating-slash-doing-slash-implementing process as it rolls forward. Renowned ecological designer Dave Jackie described what I'm calling a hybrid approach well in this personal communication. This comes from an email that I received from Dave in 2017. In reality, says Dave, I design the overall pattern, implement key pieces after designing them, and then redesign as more parts of the system get implemented. I've never had a client where I could implement all at once as a grand expedition. 
It's always been piecemeal implementation with design along the way, responding to changes in goals, sight, and emergent reality as the design goes into place. But having a big picture view, that is an overall site design to at least a schematic level, is critical to help one work out where to begin the implementation. Then I would design the relevant patches, including their site prep and implementation strategies, and then proceed on the ground. Staking out is a critical part of the process, field testing the design and reality, essentially. So, I mean, as I read it again, it's somewhere between um, fabricating and a hybrid approach probably closer to a hybrid approach and that the focus is on a, a high level big high level big picture view and then going in and working out details um, on site as 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 the implementation proceeds. Now it's back to me. Next is a simple example of a rough concept design I sketched with my parents for the layout of their new house garden. We took the concept to the site and figured out the details with rakes and shovel rather than a pencil or computer mouse. I actually realized that that's worded wrong. We didn't take the concept to the the site. Well, we did, but before that, the concept came from the site. Like the concept design was worked out on the ground by marking things out and walking around and feeling what was going on. So that we took the concept from the site and then did a concept sketch and then took it back to the site to to inform um, the the implementation process. Anyway. Um, I've got a little subtitle here that says winging it. You'll notice a little asterisk in the diagram next to the generating label in the chart at the start. It says, not to be confused with winging it, or ill-considered random slash haphazard implementation generating no coherent design. I mention this to ward off any misunderstanding that a generating process is somehow less rigorous, logical, evidence-based, or documented slash documentable than a fabricating approach. In my experience, it is more of all of these things. It is also harder work. You cannot just draw a nice picture and hand it over to the implementation team. You need to stay fully engaged as you make changes, immerse in the outcome, and figure out the best next move from there. Okay, the next subheading is From Less to More Life Enhancing. In my experience and experiments, an authentic generating process is more able to honour and enhance life in a given system than a fabricating process, where obviously a hybrid process fits in between. This is an important point I want to flesh out a little more. Life and adaptation are not separable concepts. In other words, all life involves, requires, maybe even is adaptation. To to enhance life is to enhance adaptedness. Enhancing adaptedness is another way of saying enhancing fitness. Fitness in the sense of fittedness. The fittedness of a whole's parts to each other and the fittedness of that whole to the larger holes it sits within. The moment an organism doesn't fit its environment, for instance, it doesn't live. Now here's the thing. Adaptation cannot be fabricated or master planned, period. I believe it to be an essential truth that adapted systems can only emerge or be generated iteratively in an ongoing dance between a system's form and its context. I'm going to let Christopher Alexander drive the point home. These words of Christopher's come from, again, from the 2002 um, second volume of the Nature of Order series. He writes, There is a fundamental law about the creation of complexity, which is visible and obvious to everyone. 
Yet this law is, to all intents and purposes, ignored in 99% of the daily fabrication processes of society. The law states simply this, all the well-ordered complex systems we know in the world, all those anyway that we view as highly successful, are generated structures, not fabricated structures. The human brain, that most complex neural network, like other neural networks, is generated, not assembled or fabricated. The forests of the Amazon are generated, not fabricated. The tiger, beautiful creature, generated, not fabricated. The sunset over the Western Ocean with its stormy clouds, that too is generated, not fabricated. The significance of generated structure lies in the concept of mistakes. Fabricated plans always have many mistakes. Not just a few mistakes, but tens of thousands, even millions of mistakes. It is the mistake-ridden character of the plans which marks them as fabricated, and that comes from the way they are actually generated or made in time. Generated plans have few mistakes. If a human embryo was built from a blueprint of design, not generated by an adaptive process, there would inevitably be 1,000 trillion mistakes. Because of its history as a generated structure, there are virtually none. Which brings us to the article's summary. It's like a whole, another whole page of summary, so hang in there. I have shared three ways in which holes and parts can be related inside any creation process, assembling, partitioning, or transforming. I have shared three ways in which designing and implementing can be related inside any creation process, fabricating, generating, or hybrid. Together, these define nine possible spaces any permaculture design process can sit within or move between. For me, it's been helpful to make clear which of the nine spaces I am in in any moment within a process. It has been even more helpful to realise that, in general, when I move from the bottom left toward the top right, that is from fabricated assembly towards generative transformation, the processes I am working with come more alive and are better able to enhance life. I mean, it is all so simple, really. Permaculture aspires to align with and fully participate in life and living systems. What this really means, I believe, is that it aspires for us humans to drop back into being the life we already are, and, in that sense, to drop back into being alive. At the very least, I'm sure we can agree that the rest of life creates itself via generative transformation. Or at the least, that generative transformation is the most accurate way of framing what the rest of life is and does as far as the terms of reference this chart has to offer. There are no master plans. There are no concept plans. There are no parts separate from holes. There are no holes separate from parts. I mean, just watch a tree germinate and grow or a baby growing up into a child. One thing that has happened for me as a result of all this is that designing has stopped being something separate from life. It has stopped being something I do in advance or something I only do in a professional capacity. Generative transformation can apply to everything I do, to everything we do, to every space or landscape we work with, to every day we live, to our life as a whole, to how we show up as parents, as partners, as colleagues, to how we develop our own homes and all the spaces we inhabit, to how we plan and roll out parties, courses and events of all kinds. This was initially a shock to realise there wasn't this specific set of skills I turned on and off as I arrived and left my work as a permaculture designer. To realise that in every situation I am ever part of, I can choose to be alive to the holes in their parts I am participating in. I can choose to be alive to my intentions with regard to these holes, and I can choose to be and act in ways that honour, 
what is already there, while drawing it out and developing it in the moment so as to add, enhance, and increase its life and beauty and function and flow. Everything you do, every process you are part of, everything you help create, can be located somewhere within the nine portions of this diagram. I'd love to hear about your experiences, but I'd wager that the more alive the process felt, the more connected and respectful it felt, the more it flowed and the more its outcomes were beautifully adapted to the situation, the more you were approaching the top right corner. The more you were in the space of generatively transforming whole systems in healthy, life-giving, life-enhancing, life-welcoming directions. After sessions working with generative transformation, I feel more alive, more energized, as do the folk I'm working with. Rather than being the expert who needs to manufacture brilliant solutions on the spot, I'm a process support team, a facilitator, where so many of the decisions become effortless to make because we make them at the proper time in the unfolding process, rather than attempting too much guesswork up front. Then there is the sheer satisfaction to have collaborated with others to reveal the most unexpected yet beautiful and perfect steps forward. Those of you who know what I'm talking about know that it doesn't get much better than that. In closing, I want to make it clear that I don't think that generative transformation is any way a new thing. It is an attempt to describe and clarify an aspect not only of life's default operating system, but of what is already happening when permaculture is at its best. As in generating real, adapted solutions that wrap themselves beautifully into and around the specifics of given situations. That said, I know permaculture designers who talk, teach, and write about permaculture design as a process of assembly and as, at most, a partition-based fabrication. Who in practice, especially at their own places, are doing something far more akin to generative transformation. Have any of you noticed this phenomenon? It's like we say what we need to say for professional credibility, then when we think no one is watching, we do what it is we really love. What I'm suggesting is why don't we do what we really love all the time? And that concludes the article. For your information, there is a um, note at the end that says... Dan Palmer is a permaculture design philosopher, consultant, and teacher who lives in central Victoria, Australia. Aside from co-directing permaculture design company, Very Edible Gardens, Dan is constantly co-founding things such as permablitz, holistic decision-making, and living design process. You can read more about Dan's work at www.designingforlife.com and contact him at dan at veryediblegardens.com. Then there's some references and that's it. Well, I, I hope that was useful for anyone that's listened this far, that it didn't seem too kind of hard to get your head around or seem too abstract or esoteric or whatever else. Uh, to me, these ideas are really practical. You know, I, I use them every day. And um, yeah, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm glad I, I went to the, made the effort. Um, you can read the PDF if you're interested. No, this is a very unusual episode. I don't usually read out articles that I publish in the magazines. In fact, it's the first time I've ever done that. I have read out a few shorter blog posts, that said. From here on in, we'll be going back to the conversational format. I've got a bunch of really exciting interviews coming up, including um, with David Holmgren, permaculture co-originator, where we're going to be diving into this question around permaculture's originating impulse. I've got another interview, um, Call Me a Sucker for Punishment, with Carol Sanford, booked in. Uh, I recently started a process of recording conversations with a with an experienced permaculture designer, Simon Simon Marshall, 
um, where I'm experimenting with this new format of, of supporting existing designers to grow and develop in their permaculture design practice uh, and sharing that and, and inviting others to participate in, in, in building a conversation on, on, on that front. And I've got another conversation booked in with my friend uh, Courtney, who's based over in, I think it's North Carolina. Um, I'm really excited to hear what she's been up to. She's She draws on a number of influences, including permaculture, uh, living design process, which is something I'm really passionate about, and the um, living systems thinking approach of Regenesis um, and Carol Sanford. So it'd be cool to see where, where she's been going in her work over the last couple of years. Anyway, I'll wrap it up there and look forward to catching up with you in episode 32. Check out the website, makingpermaculturestronger.net, and take care. See you soon. Thank you.